Good evening, friends. How are you all doing? Been a long day, probably feels like that. The fact that you're all still here, at least most of you, maybe (laughs) someone has run away that I didn't notice, is is a sure sign of success, (laughs) of doing well from my perspective. I think probably by now, most of you have discovered that, that we have two, two main problems in meditation, a body and a mind. <laughs> I actually borrowed that line from my friend and colleague, Jesse Vega Fry, but it's a good one. And, you know, that's, those are the two things that give us trouble, right? I mean, there's some obvious drawbacks if we didn't have a body and a mind. There's the downside to that, but they are, they are the things that hang us up, aren't they? You know, the body won't do what we want in terms of staying comfortable, staying still, having only pleasant feelings in it, and the mind doesn't behave either. It goes all over the place, does what it wants, won't stay where we put it, all of that. I thought I'd begin this evening with uh, reading through uh, the retreat description, which I referenced a bit last night, but I was looking at it again, and um, I thought there was quite a lot in, in it, so I'm going to read, read the, the description of this retreat that was posted on the IMS website. In a world of change and unpredictability, in times that often feel chaotic and confusing, Where do we look for ease and security? Often in our search for a dependable refuge, we mistakenly turn to that which is essentially unreliable and unable to provide the stability we seek. Insight or vipassana meditation is the simple direct observation of the mind-body process with relaxed, open and careful attention as we connect with our experience from a place of spacious stillness and steadiness, we learn to meet the changing conditions we encounter with greater ease and balance of mind. As our understanding deepens, equanimity in the face of change grows, and we discover a refuge that is to a great extent independent of life's changing conditions. Not bad. The parts about spacious stillness and ease, balance and equanimity, those, that sounds good. I think we'd all probably sign up for those if, if I could hand them out. If I had a, a basket of those, I could give you some of those. We'd probably all be interested in that. And these qualities can sometimes seem pretty elusive to us. You know, if we happen to to discover them, if they arise at times in our life, they they seem pretty fleeting and they don't last long. And and then when they don't stick around, when we don't feel spacious ease, balance, and equanimity, peacefulness, and in these ways, when they do change and disappear, we're left feeling 
bereft, sense of loss, like something has gone wrong often. And our usual response to this is to look for something to blame, turning often to uh, outside conditions, to something's gone wrong or, or to others around us to blame for, for this change, for these things uh, falling away, disappearing. Or all too often, we blame ourselves. You know, we must be doing something wrong. We must be not having our act together somehow or they wouldn't disappear on us if we happen to be fortunate enough to find them once in a while. And so I think this theme, this uh, orientation of our exploration this week around the idea of finding uh, a kind of a reliable or true refuge is actually, uh, I think it's actually a kind of powerful, very useful certainly way to, uh, theme to explore in terms of the teachings of the Buddha because they, they take us right to the heart of what the Buddha taught. They take us right to the, the core of his teachings and the core of what he was uh, attempting to um, explore and, and uh, teach about and offer these understandings of, of what's going on here. Because in a way, even though we, we might not think of it this way, might not use the kind of language of, of refuge, in a way we're always looking for a kind of refuge in our lives, some sense of stability or security, something that feels like a reliable place to rest our, our mind and heart to something we can turn to in this world that is uh, often feels chaotic and unpredictable and, um, and so out of our control. Maybe that's especially true these days. We often feel this, this way and lead to a feeling of, of powerlessness at times in the face of that all that's going on and how little we seem to be able to affect it. But usually we're, we're, we turn to and we look in, in kind of the wrong place or maybe we could say in looking in the wrong way. Turning towards, as, as the retreat description said, we turn towards that which is, is inherently unreliable in our search for this security, steadiness, something we can count on in this, in this world of change. And, and if we're looking in the wrong place or if our way of looking is, is uh, somehow mistaken or confused, then we're not likely to find what we're looking for. And so this is really a lot of what the, the Buddha really was, was talking about. He, he, he said he was, it was said that he was moved to teach in the first place by seeing beings seeking happiness, seeking peace, ease, contentment, and at the same time doing that which uh, led them to, to suffer. It was seeing this confusion in the world and this movement of uh, wishing to be happy that said that it was out of compassion for that that he decided to teach. Because after his awakening experience, he was initially not inclined to teach. He thought it would just be vexing because no one would understand. I think if we look at the motivation which might inspire any one of us to, to decide to come to a retreat, a retreat like this, to take the time out of our lives 
uh, for this kind of uh, practice, this exploration, I think we'd see that uh, we'd all maybe express it in our own ways, but we'd see that we're motivated by a, a desire to be happy, to be at ease, to find contentment, to find uh, understanding, a deeper kind of meaning to life, some, something in that terrain. And this wish is often uh, tied to, related to uh, these feelings of confusion or, or unease or um, uh, struggle and stress in, on some level. You know, if we're looking uh, for contentment, then we, we must not be content, at least not all the time. And if this um, lack of ease, this... this uh, sense of of trying to figure out how to make sense of life and find some kind of lasting happiness if this is to lead us to a what we could think of as a kind of genuine uh, quest or genuine uh, search then then we i think we need to really look at what what this is about because there's a a depth and a breadth of insecurity that underlies all of this that is actually really kind of a critical first step in in really embarking deeply on this path and really starting to to look at what the Buddha was offering in in his teachings and and so what we really initially need to explore and this goes really to the core teachings of the Buddha starting with an understanding of what's called dukkha in Pali this ancient language this word uh, dukkha is at the heart of things and it's um, we can look at it on different levels on the most uh, basic you could say elemental level dukkha points to um, painful sensations in the body in the mind unpleasant feelings that come uh, that are associated with uh, the processes of the bodily life in terms of birth aging sickness the process of dying, which will come to all of us. This kind of, of basic, um, you know, unpleasant experience, unpleasant mind states, emotional states that arise and are difficult to be with. In the Buddha's words, he said, it's, it's these things, it's not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, being separated from what, what we like, being... Um, <coughs> unseparated what <laughs> what's the word for unseparated being made to be with what we don't like association with the disliked you could say all of these kinds of things that that happen to all of us that's just part of life and there's there's no matter what no matter how good our lives no matter how uh, favorable all the conditions are and all the blessings that we may have in our lives. There are times when we have, when it's difficult and we have uh, times what, that are very challenging, very painful, very, very difficult to be with at times. And that's not all to life, of course. You know, Buddhism gets a bad rap. And this, this gets uh, misunderstood and, and it gets said, oh, Buddhism teaches that life is suffering. And that's not true. 
Buddhism is realistic about the, the fact that suffering is part of life, but it's not the whole thing. We get, we get what are sometimes called the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. We get all of it. We have good times and joy, happiness, pleasant, beautiful experiences. That's part of life too, of course. But we get that mix. That's just part of the deal. On a more uh, subtle level, you could say, Dukkha refers to uh, qualities of unreliable, re- unreliability or insecurity. This, uh, this is intrinsic part of, of experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Dukkha in this, on this level applies to pleasant experience and it has to do with this unreliability, this kind of uh, vol- fragility, <coughs> that's inherent to experience, uh, that's the direct result of the fact that things are subject to change, that things don't last. So pleasant experiences, they're great, and we love them and they're good, and they don't last. Nothing lasts. All things, all experience, all we could say conditioned experience, all experience on this plane is subject to change. That which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. It's just the nature of things. And so this, this leads to this, this kind of tension, this unsatisfactoriness that pervades all of life that we experience as this subtle kind of undercurrent of, of vulnerability often. Everything is impermanent. And the circumstances, life is, is largely out of our direct control, right? We don't have some kind of ultimate control over things to get them to be the way we want them to be. We can, we're not completely powerless. We have some agency. We can add into the mix. We can steer things and live our lives with as much um, integrity and grace and, and bring what we have to... Uh, to our lives, but but then we don't aren't in control of what's coming down the pike. We get sick, our friends, our loved ones get sick. We lose our job. Things happen, accidents, sickness, all of these things that can come. That we're not in control of that. We don't have that. Life is not amenable, ultimately, to our will in this way. I think somehow we feel like it's supposed to be. And we have strong conditioning to think that we're supposed to be able to get things to the point where they're always the way we want them to be, where we only have pleasant experiences. And it's kind of like, like the world of advertising and the television commercials where, where you know, the people are just, they're having so, such a good time. <laughs> and they look, and they're so good looking. And, you know, if we had our act together, we would not only be having a good time all the time, we'd look like that, but we'd actually, we'd be, we wouldn't get old. You know, like, like aging is, in our, in the culture here in the United States, aging is like seen as a, as, as a reflection of bad taste. (laughs) And, you know, dying is the ultimate in bad taste. It's like if we had our act together, these things would not happen. (laughs) 
Someone gave me this magazine. It was one of the big ones, Time or something. And the cover says, said, can Google solve death? As though, I mean, this was, this was, they, they weren't making a joke here. <laughs> it's like, as though death were a th- problem to be solved. Right? I mean, when you think about it, it's, it's so ridiculous, but, but there are, you know, this, this is out there in, in the world, this way of looking at things is there. And we, we have this, you know, we're not going to, we don't get this kind of control. And the fact that we don't have this, we can't get it to be the way we want it and stay that way, is not evidence you know, of our personal failure. <laughs> we tend to look at it that way. You know, and we, we don't want to see that, that, this is, that we're not going to have this kind of control. It seems like a mistake. And we, you know, we come, maybe we might even come to a retreat like this with the hope that we're going to be given a special tool or strategy that will let us get that kind of control. <laughs> and I, I hate to disappoint you if this is, is a link there somewhere in the background of this idea that, we're supposed to always have it be the way we want it to be. We can get it like that and have it stay that way. And it's not our fault. This isn't a reflection of failure. And, and the Buddha's liberation is not about escaping from life with its changes and its ups and downs. The Buddha didn't get that. He had all kinds of problems. People trying to kill him and give him a bad reputation. He had chronic back problems. All kinds of dukkha on that level. We don't get to get rid of that. But how we relate to it, that's where there's some, some room to maneuver. That's suffering in relation to this uh, unreliability, this uncontrollability. That's, that's a different thing. It's another matter. And so opening to this truth, the truth of dukkha on this level, of unreliability, of unsatisfactoriness, is really, uh, really is, is, the, is the starting point of this path. It's where we start. It's where the Buddha started. I'll read this quotation from uh, uh, Thai forest master Ajahn Chah, much beloved teacher. In Dhamma practice, we begin with the truth of dukkha, the pervasive unsatisfactoriness of existence. But as soon as we experience this, we lose heart. We don't want to look at it. Dukkha is really the truth, but we want to get around it somehow. Dukkha is a noble truth. If we allow ourselves to actually face it, then we will start to seek a way out of it. If we're trying to go somewhere and the road is blocked, we will think about how to make a pathway. Like this recognition that there's, that there's a problem here. And so there's, there's this key um, understanding, you could say, that the Buddha came to in, in exploring what we could call the human condition and exploring what, it, what we're up against here in our quest for happiness, our search for a reliable, true refuge, you could say. He saw that, that our struggles and, and suffering in relation to this, this unreliability 
are to a great extent born in the mind. They arise out of our relationship to it, our attempts to try to, to get around it somehow or to control the uncontrollable, you could say. Wanting things to be other than the way they are on this level. Now there is, of course, very real suffering in the world. And the truths of injustice and poverty and oppression, they're all too real. And this is not to deny any of that. But if we really look, we'll see that the root of so much of our struggle and the stress that we face in our lives has its genesis in our own mind and uh, arises out of our resistance and denial of the truth of, of dukkha, you could say, our, our attempts to control things, to get them to only be the way we want them to be and to stay that way. This, this uh, fighting against this truth of change on, on so many levels, you could see it that way. But this understanding runs really counter to the, the way we usually look at things because we're very conditioned to look outside of ourselves for um, both the source of our struggles and problems and for the solution to them. But this actually is a very, um, might not sound that hopeful, but it's actually really good news that this, this, the, the stress and struggle we find in relation to, to this unsatisfactory nature of things is, is an internal, it's born in the mind. It's good news because that's, we've got some possibility to work with that. If it was entirely due to external circumstances and conditions, we would be ultimately hopeless because we don't have this, this control. We can only affect that to a certain extent. It's limited. And so the Buddha saw that we have a misunderstanding about where to look, how to look for a true refuge, you could say, where to look for happiness, for peace, for contentment, for ease in our lives. But that we can uh, undo this misunderstanding. We can see into this. We can find clarity and wisdom in regard to this, finding a new way of relating to our lives, to experience, a way to meet the changing conditions that we encounter in our lives from a place of ease and balance. This uh, was the thing, greater ease and balance of mind, as I said in in the description here and find a kind of freedom and ease, a place of refuge right within this world of change, right within that flow of unreliable changing conditions, uncontrollable changing conditions, right within that. Another uh, short quotation from Ajahn Chah. There are two kinds of suffering the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you are not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. We're not really willing to look at this. 
we're always going to be looking for a way out and turning to to that which is inherently unreliable. We're grasping at something. It'll be pouring through our fingers. Find something that feels, okay, this feels like I got it here. And then change comes in some way or other. And then we've got to uh, look again, look again. And this is an endless and ultimately uh, futile search that, that just leads to more suffering. This is the suffering that leads to more suffering. But there is opening to a kind of... Uh, could say, as Ajahn Chah calls it, a suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So if we skillfully open to uh, the truth of dukkha, then uh, as Ajahn Chah says, if we see there's, the road is blocked, we're going to look for a way to make a path. This will, can provide this impetus to actually start to, to look more deeply at the situation, to find a, a, a way of living that can bring us to a place of refuge that is, is, is independent of the outside conditions that come to us in life. And this leads us to this famous statement that the Buddha once said, I teach one thing now and before, I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. This is, the, this is key. We realize the end of suffering by getting to understand its nature. We want to understand dukkha on more and more subtle levels. And we, we understand the cause of struggle and stress in relation to this unreliability. We want to see that and we find freedom by releasing that cause. And so this process allows us to, um, to really let go of a lot of struggle and stress in our lives and, and stop fighting against the way things are. So it's really a process of, um, this path is really a process of coming into alignment with the way things really are. You could say coming into harmony and alignment with reality. So we're not getting something some special state that we get to hang out in where we don't have to feel change or, or somehow exempt from it. And that's not, not what, we're, what we're up to here. But really, we're exploring uh, nature on the deepest level. I think, what is the nature? What is reality? And then coming into the deepest kind of harmony with that coming into alignment with the truth of things. And, and this, this is a pretty kind of radical shift of view, a shift of strategy, of our usual strategies for trying to find contentment and happiness in our lives. And, and, uh, and through this shift, it's really a 180-degree turn from the, the, you know, the Buddha once said that his, his teaching went against the stream the stream you could see as the, the stream of, of following our, our uh, desires and cravings for, for just transient sense pleasures, seeing that as the key to happiness because that's pretty much all we've been offered, you know. I mean, look at what we're offered. What are we offered, at least in this, in this country I can speak about here in the States, as the key to happiness is, well, try going shopping or something like that. Get, getting stuff or having having a pleasant experience. There's nothing wrong with shopping. I go shopping sometimes. 
and and having pleasant experiences it, are, it's great enjoying beautiful things in our lives and good companionship and fine uh, fine things that bring us pleasure it's great but if we make that those the the, the key to our, our happiness the, 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 the contentment the, the happiness we feel from that it, it doesn't last very long happiness we feel from uh, attaining these things that we're we get fixated on because they seem so promising it's it's more the release the relief from the the wanting mind (laughs) that's much more uh satisfying and pleasing than the the thing we got (laughs) it's the not for a little while where there's no wanting in the mind (laughs) but then we want again because it doesn't it's like you know like kids at christmas time who is rip open practices and then that's that all there is. You know, they, they don't provide a lasting kind of happiness. And so, so there's this possibility of moving towards a, a kind of freedom, a peace and ease that is independent of these changing conditions because we're not asking them to provide what they can't provide. And the key that unlocks the, the doorway to uh, this understanding, which is why we engage in the meditation practices, that the key to that is this mindful awareness, this mindfulness. That's what allows us to, to drop below the surface appearances of things, to see beneath this, this, uh, this strategy of, of chasing after transient experiences, of connect, this, this key to connecting with the truth of things, with reality understanding dukkha and its cause and being able to release this. That this mindful awareness is the key there. This ability to uh, to show up. And it's such a simple thing. You know, check it out right now. You could just right now as we're sitting here, just ask the question in your mind. Well, let me ask it for you. Is there awareness? Or if you prefer, am I aware? their awareness? It's, it's a good question to ask. Uh, you can ask it regularly because you always get to say yes. The answer is always yes. If there's enough presence of mind to ask that question, then there's awareness there. In the asking of it, it is there. And check it out. Get a feeling for that. Notice through the, the hours over the course of these days, notice when this quality arises. Notice the shift from being lost to coming back to awareness. It's not that, it's not some big, it's not like we're sitting there all day, you know, okay, we're meditating away, you know, and okay, I'm getting ready, here it comes. My moment of mindfulness, it's gonna, I can feel it coming. It's not like that. It comes and goes. Uh, how many times has awareness come back today? How many times did you come back to present moment awareness? A lot, right? How many, I mean, it's a lot. A thousand times? This is the heart of the... If that's our practices. This, it's this willingness to come back and start again. 
That's what we do all day long. We come back to this and we train this and it becomes more steady and more stable. And we might not even notice that, but it does. It's guaranteed. And this, this is a complete game changer. With this, with mindful awareness, everything is possible. Without it, nothing is possible. We're just going to be living out this conditioning, just spinning on this wheel, chasing after transient experiences. Mm. Just a little more. The Buddha often used, he used images a lot uh, in different ways in his teaching to try to clarify or, or expand or elucidate certain points. Um, and that he was trying to make. And there's one image uh, of a raft being used to cross a flooded area that he used for uh, sort of a, an image to uh, describe his, this path of practice. I'm going to read uh, this one, one example where he used this. Suppose someone were traveling along a path and saw a great expanse of water with the near shore dubious and risky and the further shore secure and free from risk but with neither a ferry boat nor a bridge going from this shore to the other. The thought would occur to them, here is this great expanse of water with the near shore dubious and risky, the further shore secure and free from risk, but with neither a ferry boat nor a bridge going from this shore to the other. What if I were to gather together grass, twigs, branches, and leaves, and having bound them together to make a raft, were to cross over to safety on the other shore, independence on the raft, and by making an effort with my hands and feet. And then having gathered grass, twigs, branches, and leaves, and having bound them together to make a raft, they would cross over to safety on the other shore, independence on the raft, and making an effort with their hands and feet. And I I love this image for a couple of reasons. I mean, often uh, that which you could say one of the motivations, which I've been talking about a lot already, for uh, that that would bring us to a retreat like this and get us to seek uh, a path of practice and an under, a path of understanding, spiritual practice, is this sense of of this of being swept along. You could by you could think of it as this image of the flood, swept along by um, a flood of worries and duties and unpredictability and responsibilities and pressures and all all that come with life. And sometimes that feels like it's so powerful that we're just swept along by it. Sometimes it's overwhelming. And so we could see crossing that from the, the near shore that is uh, insecure, dubious and risky to the, the shore of safety and security is like this movement from uh, a place of, of instability to a, a, ra- a kind of true refuge to use the image we're we're using for this week. And it's not that we're going somewhere other than where we are, but it's our understanding that changes our understanding. This image is this process of of, uh, deepening in wisdom and understanding. That's the crossing of the flood. So we cross the flood of confusion and ignorance to the secure shore of uh, wisdom, understanding insight and freedom. And, and so this image of the, the raft is I love because, um, you know, you might have noticed that it's, it's not made out of special kinds of things. 
It's made out of grass, twigs, branches, and leaves, which might not sound like great material for a raft, but that's the branches, not bad. But but we use what's what's right at hand, you know. So our pract our raft, we com- we make it out of the material of our moment-to-moment experience. So our raft is made out of bodily sensations, of pressure, tension, tightness, of feelings of pleasant and unpleasant feelings, of mind states of we build it out of joy and sorrow and restlessness and sleepiness and doubt and uh, all this stuff, whether we like it or not, whether we find it appealing or beautiful, that's what we make our raft out of. We make it out of that stuff. So it's made out of what arises in the moment, in the mind, in the heart. This is the vehicle. The vehicle for our liberation is this mundane stuff of daily existence what we like and what we don't like. Coarse, refined, gross or subtle, pleasant, unpleasant. It's all suitable for constructing this raft. And, and you know, it's a raft. It's not a, it's not a yacht. <laughs> and it's, it's a funky raft, right? It reminds me, when I was a kid, I lived near this I grew up in the desert in Arizona and we had this big irrigation canal that we, tr- we treated it like a river and we would make rafts and float down it until we got in trouble. And, um, and what we made our raft, we made it out of junk that we found, branches and jug, plastic jugs that people were throwing away and old pieces of wood that we'd find behind pieces, people's houses and, and we'd, we'd just we'd bind it together and make this raft and float down the canal and, you know, sticks and stuff that we found in the neighborhood. And, 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 you know, this raft, it's right in the water. So, you know, you get wet, right? You're not just cruising all nice high above it. You're down in the water and it's going to fall. A raft falls apart and you stick it back together. It's going to need repairs to get across this flood. And so in terms of meditation, you could say we're constantly constructing and reconstructing our raft out of the material right at hand in our, the flow of our experience. We gather it up and what we bind it together with is mindful awareness. That's the binding, that's the rope, the lashing that holds it all together. And so the more steady our awareness is, our mindfulness, the more steady it is, the more stable the raft will be, the better shape we'll be in. But sometimes it's going to fall apart and we're going to be swimming and we'll gather it up and tie it back together. And there's always something floating by, some piece of driftwood, some jug that somebody threw in the river, it's there and we can gather it up. So we can always, we can, it's not like we can't, there's always suitable material to rebuild the raft. It's always something there that we can bring awareness to and anything that arises in our experience is a suitable object for our understanding. That's the coolest thing. It doesn't ultimately matter in any way what's happening in our experience. It's not about the experience. It's about our relationship to it. So we use what's near at hand. We work with what's there. And in in the meditation, as we bring this quality of mindful awareness to this flow and uh, infuse it with qualities of acceptance and goodwill, this kindness that we're, we're weaving in there, 
there is this kind of steadiness and stability of mind that begins to develop despite us a lot of the time. And, and as I said, we might not really notice it, but it starts to, uh, to develop. And we start to see what leads us towards in the direction of, of true refuge or towards peace and ease. What's skillful, what isn't, what leads to more suffering. We see this in our own lives, we see this in the world. And seeing this on ever more deep, deeper levels allows us to, um, some discernment to come, which, which, which kinds of energies to follow in the mind and heart. What's going to lead us to contentment and ease. And so um, this, this leads to this really, this, this radical reorientation of our um, relationship to this world of change and unpredictability, this inherent instability there. We completely shift how we relate to that. We don't take it personally. We let go of struggling with it. And it's not a, a giving up in any way. But we don't ask the world of changing condition of transient experiences to provide that which it can never provide. We just stop asking it to do what it can't do. We don't judge it or ourselves as wrong or bad. But we stop looking there for refuge. We, we shift the way we're looking and we look in a way and in a place where we might actually find refuge or safety. We take refuge in the aware mind, in wakefulness, in the truth of things, in the reality of things. So this is opening to the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. This is uh, this process is where this, the truth of dukkha becomes a noble truth through this process, and we we take our stand on reality, and we start to discover that there's a refuge that's there for us in any moment because it's not dependent on the conditions that we encounter. It's not dependent on things being any particular way at all. We can find a place of ease and freedom right within life as it unfolds. Let's just take a moment in silence here and then I'll ring the bell to end this time.
So I offer this for your reflection uh, this evening and thank you for your kind attention. And we have uh, about a half an hour now just over that for uh, some walking meditation. And then uh, we'll meet at nine o'clock for a very short sitting with a little bit of chanting. So if you have the energy, please be welcome to come for that. Um, And it will be guaranteed promise a short sitting. So... uh. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.